0: Hello, and welcome to Bible Marathon. We're all about learning how to read the Bible, about spiritual gifts, and giving proper defense and explanation for what we believe as Christians. The goal is to progress with joy in the faith, and without further ado, let's get into the word.
1: All right, so anyone wants to share real quick before we move into the business of today, Okay, I see Mo's hand. I see that there's a chat. Let me respond. So Vicky says, "I learned that although it's true that Christ is coming soon, we are also getting closer to meeting Him, in that won't be here forever." I love that. Um, so we should face priorities. Please, we should place priorities on the most important things. Very, very true. And um, I'm sure that is from the sermon. Don't waste your life. Very beautiful sermon. I was listening to it coming back today all right so for those of you who are wondering what that means i mean if if jesus is coming soon that's true and we've been hearing it for so many years and it seems like okay where is this jesus that we've been saying is coming he's not here yet but reality is that even if he's not where someone is coming for sure jesus is coming soon and you are in a sense coming to meet him and that might happen you know before he returns that means you could die on the way and
2: um, I mean I, I heard the statistics from from um um what's his name? Oh dear lord. I like your dress TSC um and your necklace as well.
1: Um, it was from Ray Comfort. He said um hundred percent of people on the earth will die. <laughs> Like he just wanted to get people's attention that that is one shot at statistics. Like everyone is bound to die. If, if Christ tarries, you're going to get to a certain age and that's it, you know? All right. So faith learned the importance of transparency in her work with God. There's no need to form because he knows us truly and he's able to help us overcome our weaknesses. I like that. I like that. So I'm seeing the whole consistent theme of vulnerability before God, um, by, do you guys go to the same church by any chance? Okay. Because that sounded so much like what TLC said. Yeah. So, that's beautiful. Um, Mo, sorry. I, I totally forgot. Mo, please. Your hand was up. And I forgot to ask you. You Share what you learned today.
3: Okay. So, I went and I went to church today. The one I went to here, like when I went to church today, was... Um it's only Christians that are anticipating the come Jesus Christ coming back, that are going to be caught up during the rapture.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And that like it's not about like just saying you're a Christian, like you have to be looking forward to, heat, to- I almost said heat, God for me. To be looking forward <laughs> to it, right? Like you cannot yeah. and it comes like being serious about the things of God, like comes to church, some meetings, being intentional about like growth, right? And they also showed me some scriptures that I never saw before so
1: yeah you want, to, you want to share the scriptures this bible marathon we like scriptures if you don't know <laughs> uh let
3: me see let me see if i remember it completely
1: okay
3: so i think it was second timothy four verse one let me get that second timothy four verse one or first timothy second timothy four verse one let me
1: see
3: hmm yeah um, i think
1: talking about previous times will come is that it? yeah
3: yeah, mm-hmm. very last times you come, how people love us of themselves. Mm-hmm. How You like, You also have to be careful about what you hear too, right? It's like, um, yeah. Right. That was the, mm, yeah, that was a major thing.
1: I love that. So Christ is coming soon and it's Christians that are expecting his return. And that's actually something I've been, you know, thinking a lot more about. Like the fact that the Christian's response to the coming of Jesus Christ should be one of, desire earnest expectation pun intended right yes yeah we should be expecting the return of christ and if we are not then we need to fix something in our theology because everyone that spoke about it was excited they were like looking forward to the return eagerly waiting eagerly awaiting the the return of our blessed lord and savior you know so there's something we need to know that we don't know if we don't love to see his appearing like the bible teaches all right um and then goodness says you should have compassion on those that are not saved because they are sick and dying necessity is laid on you to save lives from eternal doom. absolutely the idea that um first Peter 2.9 is not about that though. but okay I think it's still your chosen generation the real priesthood is what that text is saying but I, the point is you should have compassion on those that are not saved because they don't have those nomenclature that I just quoted. So I guess that's where this is going, right? They're not a real priesthood. They're not a holy nation. Peter would say in the next verse, you were not a people, but now you're a people. So the people you know, who are not saved are not even considered as people. Like It's just like they, they don't have the life of God in them so we need to have compassion on them, not just those who are physically sick, but spiritually sick. And it's sometimes hard to know someone is spiritually sick, especially when they look all right. When when it looks like they have they they fortune and fame and they are doing amazing, we don't see their spiritual sickness. And we have to be able to, to recognize that people who have don't have Jesus don't have anything. In fact, this I heard this from Pastor First, but it's from St. Augustine. He said, he who has everything, but does not have Jesus, has nothing. He who has nothing but has Jesus has everything. And then he says, he that has Jesus and nothing is not better than the person that has Jesus and everything. Something like that. Basically saying that Jesus is is all you need. And you have Jesus, you have everything. Um, amen to that. So, thank you all for sharing. Um, those are beautiful points. I think we should start making this a practice, just so that you know it's not just you go to church and then you don't, you know, you don't remember what you learned. That's 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 failure, you know. If his hand is up, you want to share?
4: Yeah, thank you, P. Hi, guys. Um, so, I am um, the local church I attend here where I live in. Uh, Maryland we've been doing a series on the Holy Spirit a pastor titled it to the unknown God I think he probably based it off Acts I think it's Acts 17 so and I've I've loved the series um but today today was one of those days where you know when you go to church you're supposed to hear like a message but then the Holy Spirit just has his brand things just don't work out that way so um we started worship I would say that me personally yeah About ten minutes into worship, I knew that hmm, this is not going to be an ordinary Sunday, you know. And then once you start seeing people lying on the ground crying, disclaimer: I actually cried during worship today, but don't don't tell anybody that is not here. I'll I'll disown you guys. I'm joking. Um, but yeah, so it was mostly worship. I think so. I I know two things. First thing, I was reminded again, uh, you know, when the spirits has his way there's almost like a spontaneity that you know obviously we want to have there should be order in the church there should be you know teaching and all that but sometimes the spirit is just like let me just do my thing you guys just continue to bask in my presence so to speak so i was reminded of that um i was also reminded that obedience to god most of the time is not going to make sense because as we're doing worship my worship was like maybe 40 minutes in I already felt the spirit telling me, go and agree with this person in prayer. Go and pray for this person. Go and pray for this person. I was like, "Ah." so yeah, it was, it was a beautiful day. It was just one of those Sundays where the spirit just had free reign. Um, But our pastor, Pastor Victor, he did like give a short charge, like an encouragement. So, um, you know, just going back to John, when Christ promised the disciples that, you know, it is better for your sake that I depart, but don't worry. Don't be afraid. A helper is coming for you, which is the Holy Spirit um Then, of course, going back to Acts with Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended and the disciples got power and boldness, mm-hmm. um, then he led an altar call, and yeah, it was it was a beautiful, beautiful day. Awesome, awesome. So,
1: and I, I, and honestly, I, I pray sometimes that I would have would have see more of those kind of services because you know, there's very it's very important to come to a meeting and know that yes, the Word of God is going to be taught. But sometimes you just, you know, wonder what the early church meetings were like. You know, the apostles didn't have any notes per se, <laughs> you know, sermon notes or anything. They would just come and share what Jesus told them. Just imagine what that kind of service would have looked like. So they gather, there's food, and then one of the apostles stands up, men and brethren. That's literally where it was like, you know, Lord Jesus, our Messiah, who did this, this, they would tell them everything and then maybe sing a hymn because jesus sang a hymn right he sang hymns so they would have sung hymns and then you know greet each other with the holy kiss you know I, i can just imagine what the early church meetings were like and so over time you know it's like okay the apostles are no longer here we have to now build our sermons based on what they taught and 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 edify the body so sometimes I believe they also had spiritual meetings. I called, well, Ken Hagen called it believers meetings, right. In, in many of his books, talking about when you gather together, each one has a Psalm, each one has a you know tongue, each one has an interpretation. So I can imagine that was what the church looked like back then. So you come to church, somebody has a song, they sing, everybody's edified. Someone else has a word to give a word, you know, that's what church looked like. And then, the person who was meant to teach Mindy would now take on, you know, the the job of teaching. And other other services, it was not one teacher, because each one of you has what a doctrine. That's what the Bible says. So there'll be somebody who will share, and another person who will share, and they all say Amen, you know, and to all agree. And then so the judges will also be there, like the prof, apostles would probably be there and judge what is being said, and make sure it aligns, you know. So there was that communal sharing of the word of god together so there was that's why there was never the opportunity for a one-man hero worship system it was not something that was a big issue and when it was even going to be an issue paul was like ah some of you are of apollo some of you are peter some of you are. when did that start is christ divided because everyone should be doing something apollo's you know planted, Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gives the increase. We are all worshiping together. That's how it's supposed to be, you know. Um, and and so because of that, I think that's kind of like what today is going to look like. Because that's the vibe. The vibe is we're all going to share because we've done a beautiful job. I, I, I hope we've done a beautiful job of just showing you, first of all, the importance of evangelism. The fact that we've been called to evangelize. right, that it's not something for the strong. It's not something the weak should run from. It's for every believer. It's not for the pastor. It's for everyone on the pews. It's God's call to share the truth and the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Like it's something to be happy about, something to shout about, something to share. So we built that foundation initially, right? And then we went further to talk about um that was that was adventurous in evangelism. Then we moved forward to talk more about like specific questions, difficult questions people have you know when when tackling christianity um and we spent a lot of time just discussing that with my brother, um Sir so Daniel. How many of you were here? That was such a great time, you know where we just had a beautiful conversation talking about the origin of man. Um, like how do we know there's a God, a lot of questions along those lines. So I know some of you are like, where's the recording? We're going to upload it very soon. It was recorded to a computer that we need to get, you know, the the recording off. So we'll get it out for everyone to watch. I think it was a really good time. So I also want to remind us of something we learned because I know many people have not been Consistent like that this month, and I know a lot of people have been so busy with so many things. So you know that thing where you turn on your phone and then you cover the camera so nobody will know that. You know someone just did it now. (laughs) I'm not going to expose the person, but like you enter the Zoom, you cover the camera with your finger because it's automatically going to be on. I don't want them to know that can see you. Anyway, we saw you. All right, so welcome everyone. Um, like I said. What are the things we've learned? We've learned that in this theme of mission possible, it's not a choice. We get into the mission, like Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible, and we have to get the job done. We just have to. And then I told you that it's a call of trust. God trusts us. It's a big deal for God to trust us with this powerful message that can literally take someone from death to life. And God calls you to be, in a sense, the avengers, you know, Doing that work that God has really spent everything that He has, He gave His only Son. So, your job is to tell what He did, right? And we talked about the fact that it's not only a call of trust, it's a call to trust, meaning you're not always going to have it together. You're not always going to have the right words. Your life may not even be aligning fully with the message you are preaching, you know, and that should not be a hindrance, rather, a challenge. Because I said this, and someone on YouTube actually commented this that evangelism is a game of trust. Ultimately, when you are sharing the message, you are trusting God with the results. You're not supposed to trust like yourself or your eloquence or your ability. That's not what saves a person. It's still the spirit of God. And you are participating. We talked about you being a what? A co-laborer. A partner together with God. That's what you are when it comes to evangelism. You're a partner together with God. So God wants to get people saying, hello, it's not just you. You're not the person that really loves the world, all right? God so loved the world. You need to realize that it's on him and he just wants you to be a part of it. So don't be too afraid to do that. And then we, we went to talk about some misconceptions about evangelism, right? Your lifestyle and preach the gospel. And we said, that's a lie, all right? Your lifestyle does not preach the gospel. In fact, sometimes your lifestyle might be a hindrance to the gospel. Even when you are the most holy, righteous, you've not done anything wrong, you don't use curse words, nothing bad can be said about you. That can be a hindrance to the gospel. And you may be wondering how. Well, morality is not the gospel. That's why. So people may look at you and say, "Uh, this Level of holiness is unachievable. And instead of hearing that you are a, you're a deep sinner like Christ died for, like you are really the worst of the worst that God had mercy on, and now you are being sanctified by God's Spirit. That's why you look and act the way you do. Right? You don't see that. So you need to share that message. So don't be part of the community of people that keep shouting, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. That is that is wrong. That is not true. Preaching the gospel is using words. Words must be said. Right? Paul had to recommunicate the gospel and he said, "Here is the gospel you heard from the beginning that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, rose up on the third day according to the scriptures." 1 Corinthians 15. That is the gospel. So when you preach, you must use words. And your conduct might bring people to you, but when they come to you, Let them know for a fact, hey, I'm not saved because I'm good. I'm good because I'm saved. God sees me as righteous, not because I'm perfect, but because he is perfect and he has done the work. So when you preach the gospel, remember, you want to communicate truth, not experience. And this was another issue we discussed. You know, a lot of people, they want to lead with their testimony. And testimonies are good. But that's not the most powerful way to save people. Testimonies are not the power of God to salvation. It's the gospel. So when you are sharing your mes- the message of the gospel, you may have the tendency to say, see, I was once like you, but here's what I did. I used to smoke, I used to drink, but Jesus changed my life. Now, is that a good thing to share? Absolutely. But if that's all you are sharing, it's a problem. Don't lead with your testimony, except God leads you to do that. But we never see that as the case with the disciples. Whenever they preach, they just go straight to the point, hey, Jesus is glorified. Jesus is the one we are here for. And then maybe it gets to a point where people are struggling. You cannot say, okay, come, let me share what my life is like now. So, you know, there are some ministries on um, on YouTube. I know some of you may know the De La testimonies, um testimonies, you know, beautiful stuff. You hear some of those testimonies, they blow your mind. They're like, God is working, you know. Um, There's even this other one, um, Healing with Maria, really good one. So, talking about people who have, you know, struggled with addictions and different, like, you know, sexual abuse and how God just reformed their lives. Those are good things to share, but that's not the gospel. But someone can hear it and still say, oh, my shell, and still say, oh, my God. You know, someone may even be in that situation and feel bad, but there is a sorrow. That does not lead to repentance. The Bible differentiates sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow only comes as a result of the preaching of the gospel. Sorrow can come to anyone. Someone can go to AA and be free, but they are not saved. And if we don't draw the line and understand the distinctions, we may end up just being part of the, the, the um, motivational speakers. <laughs> you know, God has better for you. Leave drugs and come to Him you know, and that's not really the gospel. The gospel is, hey, Jesus died for your sins, past, present, future. If you trust in him, he'll give you his life. He'll enable you to live right. But he loves you all the same. Like he loves you as you are. He will not leave you as you are, but he loves you as you are. And here's why Jesus died for your sins. All right. Is that a good summary or what? I think that's really good. That's what we've learned so far. So today and we're really right on time. I'm going to have this conversation with a lot of you on the group, um, going through a number of things, because now we are wrapping up this series, but I want us to wrap it up with strength. So we are addressing three things, more questions and how to respond to them. All right. Because when you go out, you need to be armed. I don't know if you've ever met groups of people that, as you are seeing something, they are opening their Bible. They are not. They're not... Christians or in the Orthodox Christian community, I'm talking of, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Mormons. As you are about to say something, say, oh, you are going to this verse. Let me open this <laughs> because they are so trained with the right response, writing quote to the to the objection you have. And so, why shouldn't we not? Why shouldn't we believe that? Like as a believer, you should be the person that says, "Oh, I know where you're going." <laughs> Let's go to that text, you know, and, and it's such a beautiful thing to be always ready to give an answer. First Peter 3.15 is the, is the, is the um, you know, standard text for what we're doing this month. The Bible says always be ready. Not sometimes, like always be ready. So if you're here and you don't have that readiness, you don't know how to respond to questions. It should bother you and you should say, Lord, I want to always be ready. You know, I remember times when someone would ask me a question. This happened on UTD campus and when I was in school here. And I, I was, you know, I was practicing this thing. So I woke up to someone. I had an, I had an umbrella. It was raining. So I re- walked up to a guy who was at the corner waiting for a bus. I said, oh, where are you going? Say so I was going to the math building. I said, oh, I'm going there too. I lied. <laughs> I was actually going to go short time, but I was like, oh, I could take that part. So I said, I'm going there too. I have an umbrella is big, do you want to come? Say, said, oh yeah, sure. So we went together and that's how I started talking to him. Like, hey, what school, are, what grade are you? What's up, like, what year? And we started talking and I started, I said, are you a person of faith? Like, do you believe in like a world beyond this one? He said, yeah, nah, everything is right here. You know, I was like, oh, why, why do you think so? Like, why do you think that's the case? Like, have you not ever wondered that there might be anything outside? So, said, well, scientists have, you know, struggled really hard, but I, you know, and he was talking like someone that was really educated. So at that point, I was like, oh my God, I've entered one chance because this person sounds like he knows what he's saying. I don't know anything. So I now said, Well, um, I actually believe that there is a God. And then all of a sudden he switched his mood. And I said, Well, um, and you know, I think we should all believe in him because he's yeah, at that point I lost my train of thought. I did not know how to say anything, and I was really learning these things for the first time. So he now said. How do you prove it? How do you prove there's a God? Because you will see there's a God. Someone else will see there's no God. And how do you prove it? I have more proof that there's no God. What's your proof? I was stuck. Guys, I did not remember. I, in fact, I didn't, well, at that point, I didn't know cosmo, cosmological arguments. Tele- all the things we learned last week, I did not know z- anything, right? And many times, I wish I could play it back. Like, I wish I could go back to that time. How many of you have, have ever felt that? Like, you just want to go back and, and fix the mistake. Imagine if he had said, oh, there's, there's no God. I'm, oh, are you sure? I think there is a God. And here are some scientific arguments to prove it, even from Charles Dawkins, you know, or like, I could, let's say Charles Dawkins, sorry. Um, Richard Dawkins and some of these guys. And I would have been more prepared to give an, an answer, but I wasn't. And so the whole point of telling you that story, because that conversation didn't go anywhere. I had to let him go to his class and I just went sad. And I said, don't worry, next time I'll do better. And thank God I said that. Thank God I didn't say I'm not doing this again, you know. But when you get to that point in your life, let this be a challenge, right? This experience we have now, that make it a point of duty to tell yourself, I will have a response. There's no question anyone wants to ask me about the faith. I will train myself to have a response. And if I don't have the response, I will have something convincing enough to make the person think. Because not all the questions you have an answer to, that just almost impossible. Except for a Frank Turek. That, that, I don't know how that guy does it. He just knows how to respond to everything. Or someone like a comfort, like he's on, the, he's in the heat of an argument, you know, and they just say something and he's like, oh, no, no, and just answer I'm like, how? So people are especially graced for this but i think everybody should be able to answer basic questions all right so challenge yourself challenge yourself all right just make up your mind that you're going to learn you're going to learn apologetics you're going to learn how to answer questions and people will find you as a resource a powerful resource for for the gospel you know so that's something to pray about and something to plan for train yourself for all right so that was the first thing, right? The first thing I said is we're going to answer questions together here. Some more questions. The next thing is we're going to talk about tips, practical tips. Many of us are shy, right? We're very shy. We like to be in our own space. And the whole idea of evangelism scares the heck out of us. So how do we step out? What do we do differently? Right? So we'll talk about some of those steps and those tips. And then finally, we're going to just get some practical um instructions from the word of God on how we ought to be as light in this world. Um, so that's kind of like what this conversation is going to be about. So who is ready? Please have your questions. If you have any question that you feel like, oh, you don't have an answer to it, um, make sure you share it. We'll try to tackle them. And then also I want to add this: please don't just ignore this session. Don't have a Spectator mindset. I want you to take notes. I want you to think about yourself giving the defense that we are discussing. Like if someone were to ask you, how would you do? Like rehearse it, practice it in your mind, think about it. That's where the strength is. All right. Don't just go into the next conversation and you don't know anything to say. All right. So um, I have a number of people with me. Right. I'm not going to just mention names, just because. Um, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. We had just a little time to prepare for some of these things, but um, if anyone has an answer to the question, just feel free to pop in. So I'm talking to Ife, i talking to Therese, I'm talking to Goodness, and um, maybe more, I think, or here as well. All right, so let's pray real quick and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, this is your time. We're we are going to be instructed. We're going to learn. It's going to be... Um, useful for us in our faith and in obeying your word, which is to preach the gospel to all nations. We do this by your power and by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's jump to one of the very, very, you know, popular questions in the West, especially with people of the um, African-American race or community. You hear this a lot. You hear something like, Christianity is a white man's religion. You are deceived. You people are being Christians. It's a lie. They, you know, if you look at history, they'll give you history. They'll say, if you look at history, you can tell that it was a white man that came and used Christianity to make us slaves. And they'll point to some verses that makes it look like that. Question, how do we respond to that objection? And let's discuss it together if, if you guys have thoughts on it I'll put that in the chat but maybe i should open the floor with you uh, fair if that's comfortable it's a comfortable question for you to handle
4: yeah thank you P. it is a, it's a it's a question i get a lot it's a question i'm probably going to keep getting as long as i'm staying in this country um, and i'm sure for those of us that live here in america i'm sure it's a question that people have posed to us like when we're evangelizing So. Um, this is this is a topic that I'm quite passionate about, as P. U. will know. Um, before I answer that question, how many of you were here last year when we watched that documentary, Unspoken? Um, I know P. U. was here. Does anybody remember that documentary? We watched it last last summer, actually. Um, so what I would say, if you haven't watched that documentary, please please go and watch it. It was so well done. The research, the panelists that whether that spoke. Um, some people that we know, like for example, I remember Jack Hill Perry spoke in that documentary. That documentary could answer that question for us, and it's so much more. All the resources there. So, and you can watch it for um for like you can rent the, the documentary now, like online, so Amazon Prime, I anything. So I would say that's a good resource. But um what I would also ask, so if someone was asking me this question, like, you know, ah. Uh, if you're believing a a, a, a fake religion like is Europeans and um, both people that invented this religion is not real. But what I would, the first thing I would ask them is that why do you think that way? Because what I've come to realize as more and more people have asked me this question over the years, it kind of stems from two things. Either I mean, and you know, P will probably agree with me on this. They either they've not done their research, which I would say is 60% of the case with people who ask that question, or it could stem from you know, trauma with racism. I feel like that second um, aspect is one that we don't consider because you know here in the US, Blacks have been through a lot. You know, we don't need to get into most of us know the history of like Blacks in America. So um, And a lot of them who actually left the faith if you research that, like the reason why they learn, they just they'll tell you that, oh, the racism just made them feel like, ah, this, this cannot be a religion for black people. Like it doesn't make sense. So I would first start with asking them, you know, which, you know, where, where do you feel that brought you to that conclusion that is a white man's religion? Then from there, you can now give a response. You know, if they say that, oh, it's just the research that they've done, I would be like, you know, if you do more research, you'll find that that's totally not true. There's documented history of Christianity all over the world, you know, especially in Africa before it reached Europe and America. So that was one. But if the person is saying, you know, it's from maybe that past experience of experiencing racism, especially in the church, then your response would probably need to address more of the person than the facts. And the reason why I say that is because you're no longer dealing with an intellectual issue. You're dealing with a heart issue. So the person is dealing with pain, is dealing with trauma. You know, so that would be. I think that would be um, how I would approach it.
1: I think that's so profound because, like the, the background, is most times the reason that they have the objections, right? Yeah. So always, and this this is what we shared last week. Go go beyond the words they use, which is why I like the first first response, which is, "Why do you think that?" And who can tell me where that where that question comes from? yes tactics you see i want to wait (laughs) so i love you guys so much if you've read the book you already know what we're talking about um three powerful questions to ask when dealing or engaging with someone um with with the goal of getting them to see things the gospel way or the biblical way first first question you're asking is what do you mean by that like what do you mean by it's a white man's religion? want to very very clearly get their understanding the second question is what let me see how many of you actually remember it's a question
2: of results i don't want to say it
1: who wants to try so first question is what do you mean by that if you're taking notes take notes so this is very relevant you will need it even tomorrow i promise someone will say something that seems to you know go against your belief system and you want to get to the root of it. So, what do you mean by that is going to give you better insight into how they think about it?
5: Uh, um, how did you come to conclusion? You that conclusion? I'm to
1: go and check your notes.
5: Ah, no, I'm just saying. Please. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I trust you.
1: I trust you. I trust I you. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I trust you. How did you come to that conclusion? That's the second one. Because what you're asking is okay, fine. This is what you mean. But how did you get to that conclusion? And that's what feel was saying. Most of them don't know. They just heard it somewhere mm-hmm. and they just took it. So if they have done a lot of work, then it's a different case. But most of the time, they'll be like, well, don't you see it all around? You know, I don't see it all around you. I don't see it all around me. How did you tell me what you did? Did you research any resources? Did you... you said it's in history. Show me. What did you look through? Right? And many times, the burden of proof is on the people that are making the claims. Don't carry, don't go and vex for Jesus, you know. You know, like, yeah. whoa, how would you say that to my Lord? Have you seen people on social media? They don't have any decorum, they don't have any sense of like, it's sad, you know. They just, someone will do something funny, maybe a skit and make, you know, make mess of Jesus. And many of the time, we are so quick to jump and say, How would you say that to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you? You know, they would type all these, you know, keyboard warriors, just. I'm defend my Jesus to die to till I die. And that's like that's not wisdom. That's just you've just become like Judas. Or um, I'm talking about Judas the not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the Zealot, right? The one, the one that was part of that community of people who just wanted to bring about the the rule. Is it Judas? What is it Judas? What is it? I think it was Simon. Yeah, Simon the Zealot. Yeah. You know, not Judah, sorry. But he just really wanted to bring about the reign of the Messiah. So, whatever we're going to do, we're going to fight for that. That holds a lot of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but don't be that kind of person. Jesus did not need that kind of defense. Jesus' defense was what? With his words. They will come and they will say, Are you the king of the Jews? And you will give them a response. So, your response needs to be tactical and wise. So instead of you going out there and saying, uh, when you see someone clearly objected to what you say you believe, first ask them, what do you mean by that? Let me get you straight. Then how did you come to the conclusion? Like many times they don't know what to say next. All right, so your approach should show wisdom. And then finally, the last question is along the lines of, could do it could be any way like this, but it's, it's along the lines of, um, have you ever considered dash. So instead of coming with, well, since you've, you've not done enough research, let me give you my research. No. You still want to come from the place of, I'm a questionnaire. I'm asking you just to get feedback. So have you ever considered the fact that maybe the resources you checked are not reliable? Because here are the tests of reliability, and you teach them things you know, right? So that approach is so important. And You don't need to be a, a theologian to know how to do this, this is basic stuff and you know what i found out sorry i'm going on a tangent here what i found out is that you don't only use this approach for gospel conversations they are as effective with any kind of conversation so if if it's an idea you have about something maybe doubtful things you know some of you know what i mean by doubtful things if you've been to our bible study you know, issues where someone might be on one side of the fence, the other person believes this, but at the end of the day, it doesn't affect the core of the Christian faith. And okay, those kind of conversations, well, you can use the same approach. What do you mean by that? How do you get to your own conclusion? Have you ever considered this other side? You know, it's a beautiful way to, to carry out an argument with grace. So just to add to some of the things that Ife has said, and maybe open the floor for anyone who wants to contribute as well, when you say a white man's faith, what do you mean by that, right? Because what, what makes it white? Is it, are you saying that it originated with white people? And if they say yes, then they've blown it because the, the Bible clearly was not in a white. Like if I, for the most part, most of the people mentioned are more African, Middle Eastern, like trace it, trace it to your map. These people are not, you know, white in any sense of the word. You know, they were Africans in the Bible. In fact, I don't know if you've ever. Re- you remember the list of the people that they said call and appoint them to be deacons. You know, let the apostles focus on ministry, right? And to the prayer and uh, to prayer and to the um to the study of the word. And so they called. Who did he call? Philip. They called Stephen. One of the names of the people there was nigger. <laughs> N-I-G-E-R,
2: which actually translates to black. You hear what I just said? So the, the guy himself,
1: theologians will tell you, was a black man. So it's like, okay, there's a black man amongst the, the early church. We don't even need to go too far. The utopian eunuch.
2: Where, where is utopia? Africa.
1: Moses, go back to the Old Testament. Who did Moses marry? An Ethiopian. <laughs> so this thing, this whole thing, even not just Christianity alone, goes back, goes way back. All right? And by the way, Ruth, who was in the lineage of Jesus, was not an Israelite. Did you realize that? She came to join Naomi, and you know how the story goes. So... The whole idea of um, Christianity is a white man's religion, nah. Thomas preached to um, the Utopian know like we talked about. And then the fact that when you look at the epistles, right, for example, Peter was writing and he said to, to the, um, the saints in Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia. So Asia was also mentioned. So the idea that the gospel is a white man's religion is far from the truth. Is so it's so far off that, you know, even when you see images of Jesus and he looks like this very whitewashed bearded, white beard, you know, bl- blonde haired man, you know, that big picture. How many of you have, have had that big picture of Jesus in your house? You know, there's the one that is just sitting down like a cool man. And there's the one that has like a, a staff and he has a sheep on his, you know, those pictures. And he's always white people because guess what? The people who took the artistic liberties to describe him were white people. So obviously, what will you draw? You draw people that look like you. But if you want to be historically correct, you realize that he was very much Middle Eastern, dark skin, you know, that kind of thing. So it doesn't hold any merits. And I think just like if I said, go watch Unspoken. You, you'll find out so many amazing things about... This thing. So when someone comes to you and says it's a white man's religion, ask them questions. Many times they don't know what they're saying. You can ask them, well, have you ever considered that, you know, Philip preached to an Ethiopian, you know, where is Ethiopia? It's in, it's in Africa. In fact, you can trace it back that many of the early churches were in Africa. Like it's, it was first in Africa, then it went back to the West. You know, and you can trace a lot of very powerful people in church history that were black people. I mean, um, Augustine is it Augustine? If you please help me,
4: um, Augustine Athanasius was Egyptian. Yeah, in fact, do you you know the nickname they used to give Athanasius? They used to call him the black dwarf because he was short and a black man. Wow, when he was defending the deity of Christ they gave him that name as a derogatory term that this guy is a black dwarf. So 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 many of them were from North East Africa.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Does anyone have a comment, you know, on this before we move to the next question? You know, Mark was Libyan. Yes. Egypt and Libya were mentioned in Acts 2. Exactly. So there's just a lot of things that cannot be sustained. And you need to even realize that Jesus himself is and was rejected by his own people. And that's a very significant statement that his own people rejected him. And these people still practice Judaism, right? They still practice um, the Jewish tradition and everything. So who received the gospel? If you even make the assumption that the Jews were white, they just said they were white. Who received the gospel? Definitely not the white people. I'm just saying, I'm using, I'm following the argument. If the people that he came to rejected him, they must have been the people outside of that community. So you can, many times you can find the flow in the argument from the question itself. All right, so think through these things. These are just like few ideas we we'll share with you. But go ahead and do your research. Like, I think you even want to know for yourself that you've not been scammed, right? I, I hope it's something you... Are interested in knowing. You just want, you don't just want to assume that my parents are right. you, went, you became Christian, so they are right. I hope that's not why you're a Christian. I hope you have a personal relationship with God and you have some evidence to to back back your claim. All right. <sighs> let's um let's ask a, a lesser a, a less difficult question. So and this one is more philosophical. And you, you tend to find this question a lot more. So maybe I'll throw it up again and anyone who wants to answer, I can answer. So if someone were to ask you, how do I believe in the unseen? I can't see it, but you want me to believe it.
2: You know, in other words, Christianity
1: is blind faith. You are just making a claim because it feels right to you. Have you heard religion is the... Opium of the masses. You've heard that argument. So, any question along those lines? How do we respond to them?
2: Who wants to try? And everyone can get
1: to say something. Okay, Mo, you can unmute yourself and talk about it.
3: Okay, thank you. So, like, when someone says that, how do I believe in something that is unseen? First of all, like, one good way to see it is that there are a lot of things that I believe in that's unseen right like for example gravity when you want to fall maybe you fall down from something or let's say you throw something down you don't see gravity happening but gravity is still happening so you can't be like oh that's not true right or let's say that or they believe that okay this thing is not like you say that oh this thing is recorded in the bible and things like that how do you believe that it's true how do you believe that these things actually happened same way like in historical books you have books that you read right you are not there to see whether it happened right but then you trust the people who wrote it why because you believe that their writing is accurate same thing with the reason why people believe in the gospel people believe in jesus because there were people who witnessed his death and resurrection there were people who witnessed all the things that happened so first of all it's not everything that you see you don't see oxygen so you can't (laughs) you can't come with that claim secondly you can believe the reports of people that saw it, right? Because it's true. All right, same way you believe in science books and things like that.
1: I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I think, I, I think some people just need to, you know, stay around more, more often. There's just an energy that she has. It's beautiful to see. So here's the thing. When you have a question posed to you and the principle I want to share with you, When you have a question posed at you, many times you need to look for the logical fallacy. There is always a logical fallacy, almost all the time. So for example, let me show you, let me see if you can detect logical fallacies. You have to look beyond what I say. So listen to this statement.
2: I can't speak English.
1: Why is that a logical fallacy? You spoke. I just spoke English. (laughs) So when I say I can't speak English, if you are focusing on the, I, I can't speak English, and you don't zone out a bit to say, hey, hold up. You don't speak English, but you just said that in English. Many times, that's what a lot of people do. And you have to be able to find the logical fallacy. It's there. It's always there. So if someone says, how can I believe in the unseen? You have to step back and say okay he's saying he doesn't believe in the unseen but most of his life is based on unseen realities he's breathing he doesn't see the breath but he's breathing he's alive just like what mo did and i think that approach is very important like okay you don't believe on the unseen what do you mean by that do you mean like you don't believe in the mind because we can't see the mind or you don't believe in network because we cannot see network you just know that i can call somebody in the u.s and I'm hearing them, but I don't see it, so it doesn't exist. so you ask that question like lack of sight of something does that make it um you know unexistent like does the fact that you don't see something mean it doesn't exist, and then you just walk step by step to say, "Well, you're breathing so and you you and you I'm sure you believe there is something called breath, you know wind you don't see wind so that's a good way to start right and then you start going little by little to the real issue so when you say you don't believe in the unseen what you are really saying is that you think we as christians are making this decision based on our feelings something that we don't see right it's an unseen reality we just want to step outside of reality And that's the real question they have. So who wants to kind of specifically respond to that? The aspect of Christianity is blind faith. You're a Christian because you're crazy.
2: Or you're a Christian because you're not scientific. How do you respond to that claim?
1: You know, take some time to think about it. And if you're not on the panel and you want to share, please, that's the whole idea. We're meant to communicate, we're meant to share our thoughts. So if you have a thought to share, go ahead and
2: unmute yourself. And if this is a question that is bothering you, you need the answer to this question. Is it blind faith that we're Christians? Are we just Christians because we don't have anything else? We don't have a sense of reality.
5: Mm, Okay. How I would answer this this way, yeah, you know, that um the Bible is a historical is a historical book
2: mm-hmm.
5: as much as any other book is, and we read the Bible to believe what we believe, but also other we have other evidences that prove that the Bible is true. So people wrote it inspired by the Holy Spirit, but let's even put that aside. Human beings wrote the book based on the history that they experienced. And we read it and we believe what they wrote. And the reason why we believe what they wrote is because there are evidences that support it. So if you're reading a historical book and it says that, um, for example, it may be right that America did this and America never existed. It would be hard for you to pick that book. It's just like a fantasy but you're reading the Bible and you see things that support the Bible, even in science. Science says that the world is made up of time, space, and matter. The Bible says in the beginning, the world created, God God spoke the world into existence, God created time, God created space in the heavens, and God created matter on the earth. You see things in the Bible that we see science proving the Bible in that sense. So we have every reason to believe the Bible because what it says to be true is what we experience now. And you also see things that the Bible has prophesied to be true. So we're not believing the Bible just because it's, it's a book, but it's a book that is true. It's a historical book that was true because we're reading other people's experiences that proves to be true. The Bible says that a man, a man died and he was again. And if you put faith in him they're going to have eternal life he died and he was again and the historical experience, um, evidence is to prove that he died and he was again even people that are not christians have proven that he died and he was again it's an historical fact it's not just a belief it's a fact that a man died and he was again and that's why we believe it so that's what i would say looking yeah. at the logical
1: yeah. i like it i like that response so you you go straight to the facts of the gospel And you let people understand the gospel is not just an idea. The gospel is the gospel because it is news. And when you watch, you go on TV and you put on the news, what are you expecting to hear? Events that have happened. (laughs) I think it's because the word gospel is so, we made it sound so special. Maybe we should start using the good news more often because it's news. News about an event. So if someone were to say, yeah, Christianity is based on blind faith. It's like, uh, was Socrates alive? They will have to say yes. How do you know he's alive? Oh, yeah, he has some quotes. Oh, yeah, let me see the quotes. But you were not there. How do you know he act- Socrates actually said it? How do you know Plato said this, this deep statement? How do you know the Alexander the Great said this? Or, you know, so if you believe in any history at all, you must at least have the idea that there should be something legit, to this bible the fact that it is the most read book in the world you were not born before this book was written and if you think somebody came together to put it together and made it so so powerful and so eloquent and so systematic you know then you must have a skewed idea of of reality you know so the idea that somebody Uh, that you should not believe a book because you were not there or not believe a resource because you were not there can be defeated by every other experience you have. You believe maths, you believe all the Pythagorean theorem. There's so many things that you have to like let go of to say the Bible is not at least true to an extent. But if you don't believe in the Bible, let's now look internally and see that the Bible speaks of historical happenings that other people around that time also agree on for example the flood every almost every ancient writing acknowledges there was a flood so if the bible speaks of a flood and you agree with all the others but not the bible you are just hadn't you know and then if you look at internally again at the bible the bible is just so so unequivocal like so if it says something It is consistent with that idea till the end. It's hard to find something like that, you know. So these are just some examples. This is like 0.5%. But when you come to the gospel and you look at the implications of saying that the Bible is not true, notice what you are saying. You're also saying that every New Testament account is not true.
2: And by extension, Peter never existed.
1: John never existed. Jesus never existed. You and you just <laughs> sorry, keep going on a line that becomes ridiculous. If people outside the Christian faith, you know, people who did not even believe any of the things Jesus said can even openly say that it happened. For example, Josephus, right? A historian that was able to say, okay, his disciples actually believed. That he died and rose from the dead and he did mighty works and miracles and there are so many external sources that prove the authenticity of scripture you know it's we have enough evidence that we are not crazy people like and and this is not the best time to go into that we've done a beautiful explanation of this in our old apologetic series where I went through like I think eight is in line with um the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be Be an Atheist by Frank Turek, where he talked about a lot of things that prove the authenticity of the New Testament, that there's no way it was made up because of the following reasons. Let me give you three. Number one, their testimony could have caused their death. The fact that they said that Jesus rose from the dead and they they all died for that claim and it was not you could say they were hallucinating but it's not possible for if if all the disciples connived and said okay let's just make this story up first of all they have nothing to to gain nothing to gain if there's anything that man is going to gain it's going to always be around three things the reason to do anything you know sinister is always around money fame and sex that it doesn't go beyond that money fame and sex so Let's let's check, let's check. Did the disciples have any money to gain from lying that Jesus rose from the dead? Was there anything to gain? No. Fame or respect or honor. They lost all of it by holding to this thing that they claimed. And then uh, obviously sex was not there. So, <laughs> right? So like there's nothing they had to gain from those three. Mm-hmm. So why go ahead and all die for this mm-hmm. claim? It means something actually happened. You know, and Paul the Apostle from nowhere, who was against Christianity, like this, becomes the main person defending it. Something happened. You, you, you cannot. All of you cannot be hallucinating. It's just, just, not possible. So an event happened, you know, and you must trust that that event really happened in history. Yeah, if you want to share something.
4: Yeah, um, in regards to the blind, um, blind faith. Thing. Um, And I do, I love, I like the way TLC responded, you know, with the historical book. Another way you could approach it if someone tells us that we as Christians, oh, we just have blind faith, we just believe like a fairy tale or something that is just, you know, there's no proof for it, you could kind of spin it around that, you know, technically we all have blind faith in small, small ways, in finding simple ways. So, for example, those of us that went to church this morning, you know, like myself, um, so I'm sure most of us here drove to church. So you can ask the person like, okay, maybe you got up, went to church, you took your car. When you got in your car, did you at any point think that, oh my, I hope this car starts soon? What if it's not going to work? And No, you put your key in the ignition, you turn it on, and it came on as you expected it to. Right? But there's no, there was no proof prior for you that, you know, the car is just going to start, but the car has been manufactured in a way that it gets you from point A to point P because that's how that's what it was designed to do. You know, even me, for example, sitting down here, before I sat down on my chair, I wasn't thinking like, is this chair, good to good chair. going to hold me? Am I going to fall? It's not going to carry my weight. But no, the chair has been designed to carry my weight. That's why it's chair. Mm. So you can apply the same principle to um, you know yeah. to the gospel.
2: Yeah.
4: There is you know, you, the, the, gospel, the gospel has stood the test of time. I think TLC kind of touched on it. it this, this gospel, this Bible that we're holding here, that's been around for thousands of years. So it's not something that was just made up or written yesterday. It has been around for thousands and thousands of years, despite people trying to destroy it, ban it. And some countries in the world are still trying to do that, by the way. You know, it has, it's still here. It's still here. That, that alone is proof in itself that there's an authentic, story to this document that we call the Bible.
1: So
2: I just wanted
4: to
1: add that. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. Thank you. And and just in line with this, I we shared it last week, but I think it's it's very useful for everyone listening. You know, a follow-up on this question about blind faith could be the question on okay, let's say the Bible is actually a legitimate book. Well the Bible has been changed but has many inconsistencies or there are errors in the Bible. How many of you have heard that argument? You know, that the Bible, this is your Bible. How can you believe it? Over thousands of years, somebody must have put something like this world is wicked. Somebody must have come there to add, you know. So, how can you trust everything in there? And I just want to reiterate the point we made the last time. You see, that if, on your own, you can go ahead and um, study on this concept. All right. It's a big concept in theology. It's called the inerrancy of scripture. Inerrancy, I-N-E-R-R-A-N-C-Y, inerrancy. It just simply means the scripture does not have any error. Now, it doesn't mean there might might not be any typographical errors because I actually, for the first time, I was shocked. I used to say the Bible doesn't have any spelling error. And I picked a particular translation and I saw that they spelled it wrongly. It almost turned my head upside down because I'm a, I'm, a very, I'm a very, very meticulous person when it comes to English. So I was like, wow, the Bible actually has mistakes inside until I realized, oh, it's a translation, meaning the original, somebody had to type it. So at that point of typing or scribing, there could have been a jot or a tittle missed, right? Maybe one S. But it doesn't change the meaning of the message, right? Um, I heard that the book of Matthew has some inconsistencies with fulfilled scripture. Well, I'll ask you the same thing, or I will tell you to ask the person that said it, what do you mean by that? Show me proof, right? How did you come to that conclusion? Um, well let me finish okay, that Yeah, go okay. ahead.
6: Um, so it's just I've I've not even really watched the video. I can't I can't remember the name of the guy now. He's one of these, like um I won't say he's an apologetic. One of these guys that I don't know, I don't even know where he stands, but he's definitely not Christian. So he claims to be a theologian. I don't maybe, but is it Herman? Oh, Herman. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he claims to be a theologian, and then he studied um the he studies basically he was studying the New Testament, and in his interview with Alex O'Connor, that that one is an atheist, right? Mm-hmm. He said that he was actually studying the book of Matthew and he realized that some of the there the, were the inconsistencies not with the not that Matthew um, not that um they changed it or anything but that Matthew wrote something that was wrong right, right? so for example him saying that um, um um him equating the birth of Jesus to prophecy in Isaiah was wrong the um Isaiah prophecy was wrong, and I I get what he was saying, but then I know how to refute that, right? Mm. But then it was I did I didn't watch it because it was just an excerpt, and then they uploaded the footage, and I've not gone to watch it. But then I was like, mm, what other thing could, can there be mm. that would be like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would I would I would basically you know ask you to do some research because most of the time when you do your own research and you find other voices on it, you find you will find answers. Like personally. I I'm, I would need to see those claims, right? Um, and maybe what he means by inconsistency fulfilled scripture means maybe maybe um, he said something and then he says this was to fulfill what the prophet said. And
6: yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, I I just remember another thing that he mentioned. He also mentioned mentioned something that, um, you know when. Matthew said it um, shall be called in Nazareth. How Jesus had to live in Nazareth. How his parents had to move to Nazareth to fulfill the scripture that it shall be called in Nazareth. He said there is no place in the Old Testament that actually has that prophecy that Jesus will be called in Nazareth. Yeah, and so- he said how so it gave an excuse for how people kind of went about it. And I was I wasn't convinced though. There are a lot of things that I said that I couldn't refute it. Yeah. I couldn't say like this is it, but I wasn't convinced. I just felt there was something wrong. But there's
1: it. actually an answer to that, but to take it to take, I know the, the exact text you're talking about because I also stumbled on it and I found a way to explain that. But I don't, it's it's long and I don't want to take our mind off what we are doing today. But what I will say is Anytime you have all these little discrepancies, the question still holds. Does that discredit the entire scripture? Like, remember, Matthew is one of the gospel accounts out of four. So you have to look at the grand scale. Is there harmony? Are they all saying the same thing? In fact, if they are all saying the exact same thing, it's more, it's more suspicious. If every single account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, looks exactly the same, then... Sorry, it's very likely that was made up. Why is that the case? If Modupe, Ife, and Toyosi witnessed a crime, and I call all of them separately and say, "Tell me what happened," if all of them say the exact same thing and use the same words, what should I conclude as an investigator? They have talked to each other. They have planned. Do you get what I mean? Because how would you all know what to say? And why would you all sound the same? But if I say mo wap, you say, ah, it was when he baseball cap and he just grabbed the woman's purse. And then I say, ah, so you see what happened. So it was when he hats and he picked up the purse. Now, the main things are still there. The purse was taken, he had something on his head, but they said it in different ways. In fact, someone might observe some detail because of who they are as a person that the other person will not see. Right. So all those things are very important. When you read the Gospels, you see that that's why it's called the synoptic Gospels. That's the theological term. Synoptic. When you bring them together, one story, Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead. Every single epistle, every single Gospel affirms that. So that's what matters to you as a Christian. All right. It's so important that you you don't let the little minutiae affect you. uh, Minutiae, sorry, affect you on that. Let me. Bring one question, real quick. But I'm seeing most hand up, so let me ask more to speak real quick.
3: Mine Next is actually question a question. Oh, okay. Mine go ahead. A the gospel. Like I've heard this before that the gospel is actually news that is too good to be true, right? Okay. In the sense yes. that you know that scripture that talks about how apostle, like I think he spoke about how like some of us they think we're fools for believing in this savior, right? So isn't it the person's like choice to believe or not? You know, because even the Jews, they don't believe that Jesus Christ has like died and resurrected again. So isn't it their choice? Isn't the gospel actually that good news? Because when you think about it, Jesus Christ it basically cleared your sins away. Or am I wrong? I'm just asking. No,
1: I'm trying to understand the question. The question is: Is the gospel too good to be true news, or is it just good news?
3: Like, I've heard that they say it's too good to be true news. Is that true? Also, if someone, like, gives you that argument, like, if they don't believe, isn't it them that chose not to? Because, like, there are some people that still won't believe no matter what.
1: Okay, so two questions in one. Um, Yeah. I'll share my thoughts and then if I just add to that. I I
4: think I've actually had the same question that she's had before. I've thought about it. Okay,
1: so quickly, just to answer that, when we say it's so too good to be true news, it's because of the, the rarity of the word gospel in the entire Greek language. Like, apart from the Bible, the only two other textual sources that have the word gospel are two. That's how rare the word gospel is. So, when, like, Evangelion, you don't see it often. So when you see it, it's like, ah, something big has happened. You know, there's good news, but there's very good news. And that's the idea of evangelion. So it's still good news by definition in the dictionary. But when you see something really used, you, it kind of communicates that specialness of it, right? So just the way, maybe, give me a precious stone that is very, very rarely used or talked about. Maybe onyx or, and, you know, like even some of you are like, what is onyx? You know, the fact that it's so rare and very rarely used, when I say it, it should spark your, like, interest. And that's kind of like what the gospel does. So that's the first question. The second question, I want to it with a text of, of scripture. Romans, real quick, let me, I've not shared the Bible today. Romans chapter, um, chapter, chapter 10, verse 4. Hmm. No, I'm looking for it's not chapter four. I'm looking for where uh I'm gonna just say it's it was not mixed in okay, Hebrews, 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 Hebrews four, two. Yes, ah, oh, my Bible. I have to, to brace up again. All right, so Hebrews 4:2. Look at this text. Notice the words used, it says from verse 1: Therefore, since the promise of entering into his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you to be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, right? Just as they did. So everyone got to hear the gospel, but what's the difference? What does the writer here say? He says, but the message they heard was of no value to them, meaning it had no profiting in their lives. Why? Because they were destined to not believe. No, that's what the Bible says. It says, because... Those who heard did not combine it with faith. So if someone does not believe the gospel, the Bible is very clear that the reason they don't believe is it was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. That's how the King James would put it. That not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So everyone still has a responsibility to believe the gospel. You preach the gospel and if they don't receive it, it's because they did not receive it. I hope that answers your question, okay.
3: Yes, thank you.
1: All right, Vicky, your hand is up. Okay, I'll proceed. So, another question. This one is, let's work together on it and this probably where we'll stop. Uh, but because as we're teaching, we, uh, we answered the other question I had, which is how to, and the how to is questions, all right? In case you missed that, ask questions, all right? Even when you're preaching, Don't be the person who's just always about, ask questions. What do you believe about this? Okay, have you considered this? Before you know it, the conversation will change to where they are now saying, okay, tell me. And then you have the floor, all right? So that's the real approach. And then I think, um, just as a side note, just to repeat it again and again, and Mo was around when I said it, because I think she she asked a question and I gave the answer and I gave more context to the answer. Here's the thing. When it comes to preaching the gospel, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's so crucial that you approach people from a place of love. It's not about, oh, I know the theological words for this, or I have the defense of the cosmological, theological, moral argument, or I know how to defend the authenticity, the kenosis, or, you know, forget all those things. You may know all those things. But the Bible says, love, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So as much as you know what you know, don't always be in a hurry to get them saved. I know, yes, the gospel is urgent, but see, you'll be more effective if your focus is on trying to build that relationship that opens them up to hear from you. If they're not open, there's nothing you want to say, except by the spirit of God, oh, you know, to hijack that person's heart. But Always lead from a place of love. I'm begging, please. Always start from a place of love. So if there are people that you are trying to reach with the gospel. Practically speaking, what should you do? Pray for them. Call them once in a while. Ask them to go eat with you. you have some finances that you can spare, like, hey, let's go get it. You know, I, I, felt, I saw you were hungry today. Do you want to come out with me for lunch? Do little things that helps you know about them because many times when you know about them, you know exactly where to come in from so you know i'm talking about there's some things they will share that's like oh what a beautiful opening for the gospel and if you had shared it before you'd be in trouble like in tactics there's an example in the book tactics where um, someone was saying i don't believe in god and someone made the mistake of just approaching and saying why don't you believe in god you know and being antagonistic but if they had paused to listen to the conversation, you would have realized that this person was the son of a pastor. He has been in, in, in Christian groups for a long time. So there's nothing you want to say that he has not heard before. So it is a heart issue at this point. So always have that approach. Always try to know where they are coming from before you bring any knowledge that they are not ready to receive let their hearts be prepared and then you can share the message now this doesn't invalidate street preaching walking up to someone and saying hey i have something to share with you real quick or giving them a a gospel tract those are additional things you can do if you don't have time but when you have the time please build relationships all right so here's the question i was going to ask why does God killing people? Why is God killing people in the Bible? and He's telling us not to? I read this question recently. So they say like God is doing bad things and He's telling us not to do it. For example, he wiped out all the nations. If you read the Old Testament, you see that a lot. He wiped out the Canaanites, He told even told the Israelites, go and wipe out those nations, fat husbands, wives, children, every everything, kill all of them, but yet He tells us not to do it. Is there no inconsistency in in God? So who can answer that question? All right, Mo, go ahead.
3: If I'm talking too much. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, we have to recognize that God is creator. Two Two minutes, okay. First of all, God is creator, right? So it's one thing when you kill a person and you cannot create them. But when you look at God, he can create them again. So you have no right to like say, oh, don't do this. Let me give an analogy. Let's say that um, you bought a coloring book or a textbook for your daughter and then that daughter now wants to tear the book, right? The daughter has no right to do that because she didn't buy it. But if you, you have your own textbook and you want to like maybe write inside it, you have every right to do that. And she cannot come and say, oh, daddy, why are you doing this? Simply because you had one who bought it and can buy another one. Another thing is the people who got asked to kill a lot of times is because their human nature was corrupted. Right. In the sense that um, there's a story in the Bible that talks about the, how fallen angels slept with son of man and they say giving birth to other things like giants and things like that. So when God actually told them to like clear that race, it was a protection. It was for God to protect the human race. It was not necessarily that, oh, God is just wicked. He just wants to destroy people. Because when you look at the story of Noah, like he, Noah tried to evangelize there but nobody got saved. So that shows that they couldn't even be saved, right? So God had to like start it all over again in the right way, just to protect the human race, right? Yeah, goodness, like what you said, He did it for preservation.
1: Okay, so I am um that that's a good response, but there are a lot of things there that we I would like us to actually study together because many of these things, for example, what you shared, I've heard it from Joseph Prince. All right. And he has a long teaching on it, talking about the sons of God and uh, all of that. and basically saying that it was done to purify the human race. But you also have to realize that there are equal arguments against that. So we'll, we'll have a time where we discuss it. But I think based on what you explained right now, that's a good way to start. Number one, God is creator. He's creator. Like you don't put him on the same scale with everyone else. The fact that he's the source of all life it means he can do what he wants with that life and not be a you don't need you can't do anything, it's his choice. And you see how Isaiah puts it, you are the creator of everything, right? Lamentation says, um, is there anything? How does he say it? Something about um, is there anything too hard for you? There's there's a context to that. Lamentation 3:23 or so. Um, but basically talking about the fact that God is big, beyond his creation. So when people want to put the same metrics of measuring um, morality with God, you have to ask yourself the question, did I create human beings? I didn't. So I don't have any right to take their life. But the one who gave life can take it. And you have to understand that taking life is not like extinguishing. It is moving from one realm to another. So that's also a perspective to have. It's not like, That's the end. It's like they're moving to another realm of reality. Um, And so when you see, you know, some people have the sense of why did them, oh, my, 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 my dad served the Lord so much. Why did God have to take him? There's already a problem in that statement, you know. But apart from that, the idea that God cannot do whatever he wants to do is faulty. But to build on that, did God really take your father, or what happened was the result of the fall of man? That's a question to ask. Anyway, let's let's go on on that and talk more about some other some other responses to have on this subject of does God kill people? And we we'll round off on that. Um, let me share some thoughts real quick, and then I'll let let see come in real quick. Um, let me show you this text because a lot of people that just jump on. God was wiping out nations. And they they forget that there's
2: actually, um, okay, look at this.
1: So Mm -hmm. I'm going to rush through this real quick. And this is an argument by Paul Copan. And it's a book I want you guys to read. Um, It's got a moral monster. Very good book. So it answers a lot of questions about like morality with God. Why does God kill and all of that? Or does God even really kill? I think he d- does a really good job there. So he says, when the Lord your God brings you into this land, which you will possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perisites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, they're from Jebu, and seven nations greater than, greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them. Listen and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Now notice it says, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. So in your mind, you are thinking, destroy every single one. But if you read further, you see that the Canaanites were still alive. All right, that's one. Number two, there's a statement here that says, you shall not marry them, you shall not take their, do- So it's like, okay, what's going on? I thought you're supposed to utterly wipe them away. How come there's still the question of marrying them? So it, it tells you something about the idea of utterly destroy. Have you watched, have you seen people who are playing soccer? They're like, I'll destroy you today, you know? You know, and sometimes it's the exaggerated sense of like, wipe them off, meaning conquer them as you would a military role. All right, so take over. And make them yours. It doesn't mean like kill everyone, you know, every single one. So that's one argument that um many times the whole idea of God just being a bloodthirsty monster is not really true. It's just the language that was used. Also, a lot of these nations God said they should destroy were doing things very despicable, bad things, like offering children to Molech, which was a God, like literally they would. They will cook their children. You have to understand how how depraved these people were. So when God was like ending them, you know, their just their their very existence in a particular region, it was an act of mercy, just like Mo said. Like it was an act of mercy um, on, on the world. Anything that it seems like God did, there was a reason for it. And you have to check the reason. It's like God taking out, it's like a a, a surgeon trying to take out a, you know, fibroid or some growth so that you will survive. He has to cut through, and that cut might be painful. It may seem destructive, but you have to ask yourself, what is the end result of this thing? It's for survival, it's for protection. Someone said they also forget that God did to the Israelites what he did to those other nations. Exactly. So many times when the Israelites did what was wrong, God was fair and had all these other nations that hated him do evil things to his own people. And so you have to understand, the God's sense of justice is far above us. He's not, he's not very nice to a certain group of people and hateful to other, another group of people. He's going to respond as you respond to him. So putting the blame on God doesn't get you anywhere. Let's just start from that. Like, it doesn't get you anywhere. Okay, let's say you win. God is God. <laughs> God is God and he can do anything he wants to. But we thank God that he's not what people claim he is. He's not a moral monster. He's not evil. Everything that he has done is good. And we may not see the full picture, but we'll see it eventually. There are a lot of things that you may get us to now. Say, oh, wow, okay, that explains it. But there are some things that I promise you, we'll study together, we'll be scratching our heads. How did God do this thing? But at the end of the day, God is good, and that's what Jesus described him to be to us. And we have to believe that with all of our hearts, right? So um, Toya let me hear you and then we'll wrap up real quick.
5: Um, well, say, you say but I always say like he's God. So like that mm-hmm. question is the problem. Like you saying that while well, God told me to do this, and God said do not murder, not do not kill. Like the same because God cannot contradict himself in a sense. Because if you say, Why would he tell? The Israelites and he also told them to even chase the people out of the land. Not necessarily right. if fights, then they should fight because it's war. But he told them to actually chase them out of the land. Mm-hmm. Then if fights, then there's going to be war. And if there is war, they're going to kill people. So God says do not murder, not necessarily do not kill. Because if I'm in my house and someone comes and I'm trying to defend myself,
2: mm-hmm.
5: person dies. I kill the person, whether I self-defense or not. That's not a sin. Right. right. But if I go to someone's house and I kill the person, that's murder. So God says- That's the
1: motive. God cannot commit murder. That's basically what you're saying.
5: Yes. So that's the motive and everything. And if he gives the instruction, I think the problem, there's the a very big problem with the question because you're mm-hmm. comparing yourself to God. Why yeah. God said I should not? He, sorry. He's God. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. it's yeah. God. And the fact that he chooses to be merciful. Yeah. It's good so yeah. like he's gonna introduce us this was in country
1: he Amen to that Amen to that so we've come to the end of this conversation um th- this conversation should keep happening because guess what we're going to always come with ob- get objections every single time and must be ready to be faithful defenders of the faith the bible actually calls us to do that so thank you all for joining us today i wanted to just give you some insight into what next year is going to look like i already have the you know, freedom to communicate that to you now, even though it's still early. Next year, we're going to give a lot of attention to the Old Testament. Like, we're going to give a lot of attention. A lot of the teachings will be based on the Old Testament. I don't know how um, exciting it would be in terms of like the ability to teach and but I promise you will be what you need. All right. A lot of us are very comfortable with the New Testament. But very, there are a lot of stories that you don't even know are in the Bible. I'm very, very sure. Hey, it's in the Bible. You know, and then we'll not just read them as stories. We'll understand the implications of those stories, you know, to, to help us. You know, those stories actually have significance for us today. And so we're going to do a great job doing that. So get ready. And I hope you already know that it's not going to be me for the most part. Doing all the exegesis we're going to work together as a community. Where you know we take a book and do what we do here in Bible Marathon, make it clear, answer questions, use every resource at our disposal, and just bless God and bless people through it. So I know who's excited about just the prospect of doing that. Because at least let it be said that I was in Bible Marathon, and that's where I was able to grasp the Old Testament. Like I know what the book is, what this book says. Makes sense to me, all right. And if you're already on a journey reading through the Bible and you're still in the Old Testament, please go ahead and do that. Don't stop and say, We're going to do it, all right. So, um, I've come to the end. Any questions, real quick? Any comments from anyone? Feedback, real quick, as we round up this series. We're going to a new series from next week, next month. So, get ready for that. It's going to be exciting, very exciting. So look look forward to that. Okay, no questions. All right, let's pray. Oh, Amaka has a hand up real quick. Hi, Amaka. Hello.
6: Um, I wanted to ask. It's um on is related to evangelism. So I mm-hmm. spoke to an Uber driver. I um, pre- preached to him, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Oh, we pray together," and he seemed to accept the thing. And I collected his number. And this was like in 2021.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
6: so I collected his number and said, oh, I'll reach out to you um, basically for discipleship in that in that light. Um, but he texts me later in the evening and says, oh, my family do- doesn't think I should be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that you should contact me anymore or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to do like after that. I just left it. I don't know if I could have done something different other
2: than just, you know, leaving it at that. My dear, the highest, this is my own
1: personal opinion. I will pray and trust that God will have another person come his way because God doesn't depend on just one. Thank thank God the laborers, you know, he doesn't say the laborer, the laborers. Um, He said, you know, Jesus said the laborers are few, the harvest is ripe, but you know what? Trust God. You've done your part. You've sown your seed. God's going to bring someone very close to him that will continue the work that you've started. Because sometimes when he gets to, if someone tells you, I'm not interested, Jesus himself said, take your shoes, dust it and go. <laughs> so if Jesus himself says, don't, does not say "Barge into their house and force them to believe the gospel or keep sending them texts? You know, if they've told you, I would not appreciate it. Just do the noble thing and let them go. But where you can do powerful things is in the place of prayer. So I would recommend just keep praying for him when it comes to your mind. Pray that the Lord will send someone his way and that he will hear the same thing and believe the gospel. And, um, you know, make the hard choice of counting the cost, letting go of his family. For the sake of christ like that's what you have to do especially if he's like in a very religious family that hates christianity you have to let go of real strong relationships he has built for the sake of christ that's a hard thing um very hard to do so god has to step in and help that's that's my answer there's nothing else you can do except pray and and trust god does anyone have any other thoughts on that just pray, yeah, there's a question on the chat. I'm sorry for keeping you guys waiting, you know, but we're going to be done now. I feel like we should start making this thing. No, let me, let me not say it. Let me not say it. Don't worry. My question is about people saying it's only 144,000 people saved. Is that scriptural? Um. So here's the thing to understand. 144,000 is one of the hundreds of unique numbers in the Bible. And if somebody is going to claim that 144,000 is the number of people that are going to be saved, there are a lot of other numbers you have to answer, right? So there's a number in, in the same book of Revelation, seven. There's a number in Isaiah and in Daniel. You know, there are many numbers. That's my point. There are many numbers. And so before you even conclude on anything, you must ask yourself, what is that number representing? If, you know, and my study, Showed me something 144 divided by what, 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 how many of you remember square roots? Just, me. just want you to think a little bit about it. Okay, what is the square root of 144? 12. What is peculiar about the number 12? Oh. Disciples, beautiful disciples. What else? Israel, tribes of Israel, beautiful. Israel. So, if you read that text more, that's the assignment I'll give you go back and look at that number 144 and see the significance around the Jews. Why is that number special to the Jews? And you will will make a very marvelous discovery. To summarize, it's not talking about those who will be saved, but it's talking about something that will happen in heaven. And these people are important in that thing. So go and study it because we don't have enough time. And come come to me with a voice notes and we'll discuss it further, okay? And even what um, Ife said about 666, you know, in Revelation, also as a contextual meaning, when you see the mark of the B666, some of you are thinking they will just write 666 on your hand, like this, <laughs> or your head, as far from what it's talking about, but that's a conversation for another day. All right, love you guys so much. Have I prayed? No. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for this time we go in your grace and we walk into this new week with a passion for the souls of men. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Hey there. So we've come to the end of this teaching session and we hope it was for you a teaching and an enlightening moment. We have so many other topics on our podcast that range from spiritual gifts to charisma to interpreting the Bible well and so many others. If you'd like to listen to any one of them, just look through our podcast catalog and find the topic that you'd love to learn. If you'd like to join us Sunday live on MixLR or on Zoom, all you need to do is go to our website, which is bit.ly forward slash bmg live 4 That's the number. For, or you can look in the description and you will find the link to the website there we hope you have a blessed week and continue to grow and progress with joy in your faith